passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel 29. Uh, you guys have been going through 1 Samuel, and so we're just going to be chugging on along. So if you would, uh, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 29, and beginning in verse 1. Now if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place which you have assigned to him. He shall not go with us into battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now. Go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered into your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go with us into battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. May God, may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Our passage today uh, seems pretty mundane. It doesn't seem like anything all that exciting happens. And honestly, passages like this sometimes make us wonder, all right, God, of all the things you could have included in your word, the things that you determined we needed to hear. All right, that's not good. All right, I'm just going to go over to the other mic. All right, can everybody hear me? Yeah, this works. All right. Well, as I was saying, of, of all the things that God could have included in his word, he determined that this passage would be preserved for us. And so there is something that we are to learn today. And if nothing else, it shows us one thing, that God is always involved in life. God's involved in the smallest of details. And, and, and think about that for a moment. At the end of the day, if God doesn't care about the little details of our life, he, he's really not involved. Because 95% of our lives are going to be made up of these small, seemingly insignificant details that over time have a cumulative importance. 
And so God is involved with these little details, this little skirmish that really doesn't seem all that significant, and yet God is involved. But there's another thing our passage looks at is just this idea of waiting. David was told long ago that he was going to be king, and it's been years now. And God has slowly been working in and through all these little circumstances to work out the time when David would rise to power. And Saul, who's been a horrible king, who's been trying to kill David, he's still hanging on. And David is waiting, okay, when is this going to take place? When are things going to change? And now waiting is difficult for everyone. There is no one in this room who is who's told, hey, you need to wait for this, who says, fantastic, that is the best news I could have heard. Whether that's being stuck in a traffic jam where you thought it was going to take you five minutes to get to one place to another, and it ends up taking 30, or if you're sitting in the doctor's office waiting for a significant diagnosis, or maybe you're waiting for your child to be born, or waiting for your kids to get married. Whatever it may be, waiting is really, really difficult for all of us. And yet that's exactly what this passage illustrates for us, what it looks like for someone to wait on God. First Samuel overall has been this book explaining how this rise to the kingship is going to take place. Prior to First Samuel, the book of Judges is what was going on. And if you're familiar with that book, basically the way you summarize those times was in that day in Israel, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Complete anarchy. It was horrible. And Israel, rightly, looking at their situation, saying, hey, this stinks. We can't keep going on like this. Why don't we get a king? Why don't we get someone who's going to help us out and set things right? Now, the thing is that God always intended to give Israel a king. We know that from Scripture. We know that starting in Genesis, where Israel was blessing, Jake, or blessing Judah, and he predicted, kings are going to come from you. That's going to be your future. Kings will come from Judah. But then also, later on in Deuteronomy, it says this in chapter 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. That being the key phrase, whom the Lord your God will choose. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the book of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So Israel was supposed to have a king eventually. They were supposed to have a person who would lead them in all that God intended for them to be. But the issue here was not of whether or not having a king was right. The issue was when and why they would have a king. Israel jumped the gun. They insisted on having a king sooner than they should have. They could have come to the Lord and said, God, we think we need a king. And based on your word, you said we're going to have one, but when is that going to happen? They could have engaged with God with that. They could have prayed to him. Instead, they just made the decision, we need a king and we want to make it happen. Right away, Samuel told them, hey, this isn't a good idea. And he lays out all these things that having a king that's just like the rest of the nations, what that would mean for them. And Israel says, yeah, 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 we still want to do this. And everything since has been the result of this failed experiment of Israel jumping the gun. They brought in this king who was a Benjaminite, who at the end of the book of Judges, you know Benjamin is not good. Like everything that happens in a city of Benjamin is just like Sodom and Gomorrah. They are wicked. They are not looking to the Lord. All the handwriting was on the wall. This is not a good idea. Don't move forward with this. But because Israel was afraid, 
And because they saw circumstances that, that, that made them nervous, they jumped at anything that they thought would bring immediate relief. And for them, that meant a king. And so they end up choosing Saul. And Saul was chosen because he was taller than everybody else. He looked the part. He was handsome. He was charismatic. And they thought, surely a guy like this can lead us well. But Israel was not looking to the Lord. They didn't bring it before God and say, God, we think we need a king, but what would you say about it? What is your timing? Timing is everything. Sometimes timing is what determines whether or not an action is right or wrong. And that's exactly what we see with Israel. Their timing is horrible because they're not waiting on the Lord. And ultimately, Saul is a failure as a king because he does not listen to the voice of the Lord, which is no surprise. Looking at the tribe of Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges, they disregard the word of God, they close rank, they circle the wagons, and they refuse to submit to what God has to say. And now it's no surprise that Saul doesn't listen to God. Saul does what's right in his own eyes. Saul rationalizes his sin. Right away, early in his kingship, he was told to go and destroy all the Amalekites. And Saul goes in and he, does, he selectively obeys the word of God, which is code for he just disobeyed it. He goes in and God said, you are to wipe out everything. Man, woman, child, all their spoil, you are to take nothing. And Saul goes in and he says, well, I'm going to keep all the good stuff. And then later he rationalizes it and says, well, God, I just, I just kept these things because I thought I could offer them to you. And that's where God rebukes him and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't disobey me thinking that you have a better way of serving me. Don't disobey me thinking that I will be pleased because you figured out something that I missed. God is sovereign over everything. He knows everything. When he lays out his commandments, there is only one response that we should render, and that's obedience. Because God is good and his way is best. But Saul doesn't listen to that. And that's why right away Saul is told, you're going to lose this kingship eventually. And David, your neighbor, is going to take it. And instead of Saul being humbled and repenting and saying, you're right, I was wrong. And you're right, I shouldn't be king anymore. David should be king instead. Instead, he spends a number of years trying to kill David, trying to preserve his own legacy. But now, right in, Psalm 20, or in 1 Samuel 29, the end is coming. Uh, the end of the drama is coming close, where Saul is going to die. Last week, you guys heard from 1 Samuel 28, where Saul inquires of Samuel, who is dead. A medium raises him up. And Saul's like, Samuel, God isn't answering me anymore. What do I do? And in 1 Samuel 28, verse 17, Samuel says this, The Lord has done to you, Saul, as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. That was Saul's critical flaw. I mean, when you look at Saul and David, they commit a lot of the same sins. And yet, what's the difference between the two of them? When both men are confronted with their sin, Saul makes excuses, Saul rationalizes, and David repents. That is the major difference between these two men. And that's why David is called a man after God's own heart. It's not because intrinsically he was better than Saul, it's not because he always performed better works than Saul. It was because he was sensitive to the word of God. He, he listened to what God had to say, and he waited on God, and he pursued things God's way. Saul did not. So it begs the question, though, why do we, wait, why do we struggle so much with waiting? 
Because ultimately, that's what Saul did. When Saul uh, took matters into his own hands, it was because God wasn't showing up in the timing that he wanted. So Saul took things into his own hands. But why do all of us struggle with waiting? I would submit to you there, there are a number of reasons. For one, we doubt that God is really at work. We might say, yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but Jesus really doesn't care what job I have right now. Jesus really doesn't care what school I send my kids to. Jesus really doesn't care whether or not I watch this sort of show. Jesus really doesn't care whether or not I buy this house or buy this car. But if Jesus doesn't care about those things, then by and large, we really don't need to follow him that much. Jesus cares about the little things, and we need to recognize that God is always at work, even in the seemingly most mundane circumstances. We also doubt God's power and or his intentions towards us. When you think about Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came to Adam and Eve to tempt them, that's what he called into question, was God's intention towards Adam and Eve. God had created this perfect creation. He had given clear instructions of what it would look like to follow after him. And Satan comes along and says, did God really say? And then he follows that up with, God really just doesn't want you to be like him, which is implying God doesn't have your best interests in mind. God is holding out on you. And if you're going to be happy, if you're going to find fulfillment, if you're going to find satisfaction, then you're going to have to disobey the voice of God. And Adam and Eve do that. And the rest of this fallen world that we see is the result of that. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible result because we would not trust God. We don't trust his power. We don't trust his intentions towards us. And we think that we can do things better. And that's why our passage this morning makes this very clear point. God is always at work for the good of his people. And so that means as the people of faith, we need to wait for God to bring salvation in his timing and in his way. Let me say that again. God is always at work for the good of his people. So the people of faith need to wait for God to bring his salvation in his way and in his timing. Now, there are a couple particular things I want to draw out from that first. For one is the nature of waiting. When we think of waiting, a lot of times we equate that with saying, I just sit and do nothing. That is not the way the Bible talks about waiting. Waiting is extremely active. If you want to see an example of waiting, read the Psalms. A lot of those are people, they've been presented with the promises of God, these expectations for the future, and yet they look at their present circumstances and they say, there's a disconnect here. God, you promised all these good things, but my life doesn't look that good right now. And so the psalmists start wrestling through these realities. They start asking God, how long, O God? How long are you going to let the wicked keep getting away with what they're doing? How long, O God, are you going to let me suffer wrong for doing what's right? And so that is what it looks like to wait. It's when we're actively engaging with what God has said and trying to make it fit with our own circumstances, trying to make sense of life. It's a very, very active thing. It also involves doing the work right now that God has put in front of you and not worrying about what's 10 steps down the road. Waiting means saying, okay, yes, this great thing is coming in the future, but it's not yet. We see an example of this actually in the New Testament in the book of 1 Thessalonians where this congregation, they took seriously the fact that Jesus Christ could come back at any time. And they were really excited about it, and they were really anticipating it, but it led to a deficiency. And instead of this propelling them on to good work, they started becoming lazy. They figured, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, why put the effort into this job right now that's not going to matter anyway? And Paul refutes that. He says, no, 
actually, while you wait, you are still to press on in good works. You are supposed to do the task that God has put in front of you. I mean, we can look at our political climate right now, and there are plenty to be frustrated with. But those things aren't within our power, by and large. I mean, we can vote, but let's face it, our one vote doesn't really change all that much. But there are so many things in your family, in your own life, that God says, the next step of faith is very clear. Take that. Step forward in faith. Be obedient to what I've called you to. Don't worry about 10 steps down the road. I mean, we can think this way even in terms of the way we give. I mean, I can always rationalize, well, I, you know, I, I've got this extra money, and I feel like God's calling me to give to this thing, but what if my car goes out and I need to buy a new car? What if the water heater goes out? We can always come up with these hypothetical situations, but the fact is you don't know what's coming next. So if you have the opportunity and God's laying it on your heart to do something right now, we're supposed to walk forward in faith. We're supposed to do that. Being able to wait also assumes that we possess a confident view of the future that enables us to persevere. The fact that we know that God is in control, the fact that we know that every good work will receive a reward, should motivate us to say, all right, being faithful to God, that's the most important thing, because that's what's going to last forever. That's what I need to give myself to. That, this is a completely different view than what Saul had. Because you think of this idea of waiting, you know, the, the other side of the spectrum is being sinful and just living for the moment. Saying, this is what works for me right now. I'm going to have to do this right now because I might miss out otherwise. Those are two very different mindsets. The other thing I think we need to think about is not only the nature of waiting, but the nature of God's work. Remember, God is at work in the little details. When Jesus gives parables about the kingdom of God, he talks about the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, seemingly insignificant. But he said, give it time. Over time, this seed is going to grow, and it's going to become the most significant of trees. It'll be the largest of trees. And he says, in the same way, that's what the kingdom of God is like. God is always at work. It might start small, but over time, there are going to be significant changes. You know, as being in, in ministry, I, I hear a lot of people ask the question all the time, why does God let bad things happen in this world? What, what's the, the purpose of that? And the, the best analogy that I can think of to, to address that is think of a baker. A baker, you know, bakes cakes, pies, things like that. In any of those things, the individual ingredients by themselves might be disgusting. I remember as a kid biting into unsweetened chocolate one time because I thought, oh, well, it's chocolate. And it's like, it was disgusting. I hated it. But if you're making a certain cake, that unsweetened chocolate, when it's combined with all these other ingredients and under the direction of a trained baker, can end up making a really delicious cake. In a similar way, God takes all the little different ingredients of life that are by themselves, in isolation, it's horrifying, disgusting, and we just can't make any sense of how this could possibly be good. But somehow, because of God's wisdom, because of God's sovereignty, he takes all those things together, and he puts it together, and he makes something wonderful from it. Think of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We can cite that verse flippantly, but we're, we're called to think about, okay, God, this horrible thing is going on right now, but what are you doing? People who wait on the Lord are people who are trying to make sense of God. What are you doing here? Yeah, this situation looks bad. Yeah, that thing looks disgusting. Yeah, that, that looks horrible. But what are you doing here? Because Scripture calls us to recognize that God is at work. 
Now you're probably wondering, okay, when are you going to get to the passage that you say you're going to preach on? Well, that's exactly what's going on in, in 1 Samuel 29. All these things that have been horrible. If you were an Israelite in this time, and Israel is about to get wiped out by the Philistines, think of the angst that would have been there. I mean, we think we've got it bad because we've got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton running for president, and one of them is probably going to win. Like, we might think, okay, we've got it bad, but Israel has it so much worse. They've got an army that has oppressed them for as long as they can remember, and not only are they at their front doorstep, they've actually made it into the house and are halfway up the front stairs already. The Philistines are coming in, and it looks bad. And this isn't just, oh, is my 401k going to disappear? It's like, is my town going to be wiped out? Are we going to be murdered? Are our wives going to be taken and, and sold off? Are our children going to be put to death? This is what's coming up to Israel. So all these horrible things that are happening because of Saul's failed kingship. In the midst of all this, God is at work. Because everything that's come up to this point, God has orchestrated for his good and perfect plan. God is raising up a good king for himself. And so everything we see here is actually the work of God's salvation. When we think of salvation, though, we, we usually think in the very specific sense of justification. The point in time where someone trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and recognizes that they can only be saved by faith alone. And that's true. That is salvation. But salvation, as the Bible talks about, is much more holistic. It has to do with all of life. Everything is to be transformed. Everything is to be changed. All your desires are supposed to be reoriented. All of your expectations and goals should be reshaped. That comes with salvation. And that's what's going on here, where David, everything that he has done has been shaped by the word of God. Everything he's pursuing is based on the word of God. Israel was pursuing after the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis, God called Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you a people. And I'm going to be a God to you and you're going to be my people. And he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you there. And then I, as I bless you, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to other people. That was the goal. That was, that was the ideal for a faithful Israelite. And then along the way, Israel realized, hey, we're going to need a king. We're going to need a king to help us be faithful to God. We're going to need a king to model for us what it looks like to follow the Ten Commandments. We're going to need that. But they got a bad king because they jumped the gun. They embraced Saul, a man who didn't listen to the word of God, a man who wasn't responsive, who, whose knee-jerk response wasn't to, to obey God, but rather to try to make excuses and make his own thing happen. That's what they chose instead. And so that's where Israel disobeyed, and everything falls apart. They chose a king for the wrong reasons, but God, right away in 1 Samuel 16, makes it clear that things are going to change. This bad king that was raised up, God says, okay, Samuel, go, and you're going to anoint a new king. And he says, don't look at his outward appearance. Because I don't judge as a man judges, I look at the heart. And so the way God is going to fix this, he's going to raise up a godly king who pursues God and who loves his word. But also along the way, it's predicted, okay, well, Saul's got to die, though. Then how is that going to happen? And that's where we see God intervening through all this. We saw three main stages, or scenes, if you will, leading up to this. There are two instances where Saul is given into David's hand, and David doesn't kill him. And you think, well, why? I mean, Saul is actively pursuing David to kill him, and seemingly he has this perfect opportunity to kill Saul. The first time, David is hiding in a cave, running for his life, and Saul comes in because he's got to use the bathroom. 
completely defenseless, sitting there, and David, instead of killing him, cuts off the edge of his robe so that when Saul goes out, David can come out behind him and say, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And right away, Saul makes this amazing proclamation. He says, David, you are more righteous than I am. Surely you're going to be king. Even Saul, in this moment of clarity, recognizes, David, the handwriting's on the wall. You're God's man. God is going to raise you up. And so God worked in David's heart there. He brought conviction. But in the next scene, David doesn't do so well. He has the the run-in with Nabal, who is a fool, and who deeply offends David. And David says, all right, well, I'm going to take my men. I'm going to come and kill all of you. And thankfully, Nabal is married to a woman named Abigail. And she comes out and says, hey, please don't do this. And what's amazing is her argument is, why would you want to do this and get blood on your hands for when you become king? Don't do this. Nabal, he's a fool. Don't pay him any regard. Don't take matters into your own hands. And David responds to her and says, blessed be God because of you, Abigail, because you prevented me from working salvation with my own hand today. And that would have been a huge problem. God in all of this is making sure that David's ascension to kingship is legitimate. He wants it to be that when David becomes king, that there's no suspicion of how he got there or why he got there. David is being established as king, and it's taking all these little steps along the way to do it. And so when we see in 1 Samuel 29 that David, he, at this point, he's run down to the Philistines. He's hiding out there because he knows Saul's still trying to kill him because there was that second incident where Saul was sleeping. David came in, took his water jug and his spear, and he had another opportunity. And Saul again confesses, David, you're more righteous than I am. But David recognizes, well, this is going to be kind of a pattern here. I should probably just leave. And so he goes down to the land of the Philistines because he knows that eventually God will bring him back. So even while he's down with the Philistines, he never actually is serving them. He's kind of being subversive. And so he's still making attacks that benefit Judah because he knows God has promised I'll be king. I'm coming back eventually. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I'm coming back because that's what God has said. And so even now when David is with these Philistines and he's getting ready to go out to battle where this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites is being set up, God is still at work. We know from the last chapter that Saul is going to die. It's going to happen. Nothing's going to change it now. God has predicted it. David doesn't know that, though. We as the readers, we have that advantage of knowing, okay, Saul's going to die. This is when it's going to happen. Because David said the last time that he spared Saul's life, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do that. God is going to take care of him. Maybe he'll fall in battle. That's one of the things that David says. He recognizes God is going to clear the way. If God wants David to be king, God is going to make it happen. And so when David is getting ready to go out to battle with the Philistines and he's told, hey, you're not coming with us, David didn't realize that God was protecting him. God was keeping his hands clean. If David had gone out to battle with the Philistines, he would have eventually been undermined in his credibility. David, when he served Saul, was actually over his bodyguards. His primary responsibility was to protect Saul. Now, imagine they go out to battle, and even though David doesn't fight for the Philistines, maybe he tries to fight on the side of Israel. If Saul still dies, just imagine what the rumors would have been once David became king. Oh, that's kind of convenient for you that Saul died in battle, now you get to be king. That worked out nicely. There would be suspicion that maybe David didn't try that hard. And this way, David is not put in an awkward position to have to fight against his brethren, 
But not only that, but we know in the next chapter that David's home city, his base of operations, is going to be attacked. And his wives are going to be kidnapped, and his, his brothers are going to lose property and whatnot. And he needs to be in position to help them. So everything that God is doing here, God is positioning David. God is positioning this man of faith. Because ultimately, God is the one who's working out the salvation. God is the one who's raising up a good king for Israel. God is going to take care of this godless Saul. God is keeping David's hands clean, and that's something that we need to to keep in mind, that God is always shaping and moving things and loving his people well. Now, that doesn't mean things always go well. That doesn't mean things always go easy. I mean, later on when David will sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, in that story, Uriah is one of the few guys who does everything right, and he's one of the guys who ends up dead. So I'm not saying that this is a health and wealth prosperity sort of message, that if you do what God wants, that you're going to be blessed. But if you're doing what God wants, God is going to use that to make you who you're supposed to be. And God is saving Israel from following after Saul. He's raising up a new king because so long as God's people follow after a leader who doesn't regard God's word, they will never be what God intends for them to be. Never. And that's something for you guys to definitely be considering as you guys are looking for a new senior pastor, making sure that you choose a man who loves the word of God, who preaches it faithfully, because you could have someone who comes in who's got all these gimmicks of how to grow things quickly, how to take the easy route, but at the end of the day, you want to choose someone who's faithful to the word of God, because you will never be what God intends for you to be, unless you're following a leader who is obedient to the voice of God. That's what we need. So in light of all these things that, that God has been doing, I mean, even the Philistines recognize that David is rising. They recognize his power. In our passage, in verse 5, it says, Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. David has a reputation. God has clearly been at work in David. Back in chapter 16, God says that his spirit comes upon David, it leaves Saul, it comes on David, and it empowers him for this work. David is a significant warrior. He's accomplishing the fights of God. I mean, Abigail says the same thing. He says, she says, I know you're going to prosper because you fight the Lord's battles. The same couldn't have been said for Saul. So God is working all this out. The Philistines recognize David's power, his, his ability, his might. But then we have to look at, okay, well, what's David's response to all this? What has David been doing in response to all these things that God has been accomplishing? And that's where we look in verse 6 where when, when Achish tells David, hey, you're not going to be able to come out with me, David kind of pretends, oh, I'm really disappointed. I mean, he had to walk a fine line here. If he's it's like, sweet, I'm out of here, that would kind of call his, uh, his loyalty into question. If he pushed too hard and actually did end up being brought along, he's back in a pickle. And so, but David kind of goes this fine line where he says, all right, well, I'm going to be disappointed, but not too disappointed. But make no mistake, God has gotten David out of a very difficult situation here. But David is faithful, and in fact, I would say the way you could talk about his activity is he's been very subversive. He's had this other agenda. He, he's come across, and he looks like he's one thing, but he's been something else. And, and I don't mean that. I know that sounds bad as far as being deceptive, but Eugene Peterson talks about this, where he talks about pastors needing to be agents of subversion, people who are working underneath the surface to do things that normally can't be done. And there are a couple of things that he says about someone who employs subversion. First, someone who's going to be subversive looks at the status quo and says, things are not okay the way they are. Things have to change. Things have to be overthrown. 
And that was David's attitude. David knew Saul can't be king forever, but David knew he was in a difficult situation. He had to go down to the Philistines, and so he was active, but everything he did was subversive. He was fighting battles that benefited Judah because he knew, down the road, I'm coming back. And so this, this oriented him. Because the other thing about someone who employs subversion is they recognize there's another world coming that is not yet visible. They recognize there's something coming that we can't yet see, and I'm going to act and live like that other world is the real one. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. We live not as people who think that this is all that there is, but we recognize the kingdom of God is coming. There's going to be a day where there's a new heavens and a new earth, and we're supposed to live like that's already real. And as we do that, the people who are only living in this world, they look at us and say, what you're doing doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense for you to live that way. You're being a fool. And that's exactly Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, some people have heard of uh, Pascal's Wager, where he talks about basically that the smart money is on someone believing in God. Because say there is no God, but you did believe in God, well, nothing really happens to you. Say you believe that there is a God, and there actually is a God, hey, you end up in heaven, that's a good thing. But say you believe that there is a God, but there isn't one in the end, well, you still lived a good life. But then say that there is a God, and you didn't believe in him, you end up in hell. In one of those four situations, it ends badly. And one pastor I heard, uh, he explained that that's actually a horrible way to argue for Christianity. Because that, that, that's not what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if, if the resurrection isn't true, we above all people should be most pitied. Which means that people shouldn't look at us and say, well, even if you're wrong about God, at least you still had a good life. Like, that is not a sacrificial life. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We, people should look at us and say, you're playing a game that nobody else seems to be playing. You're in your own world. Like, you are not doing what the rest of us are doing. You don't have the same values that we have. And that's what David's doing. He, did, he wasn't giving up on his situation. He wasn't letting go of the promises of God. He knew he would be king. He knew he would lead Israel. And so everything he did played out as though he believed that were already true. He was still fighting for Israel even when he was with the Philistines. And God was using that. God protected him in that. God guided him in that to bring him to where he's supposed to be. The, the third thing that we see that with someone who employs subversion is the, the usual means for bringing in a new kingdom. That's usually like politics, military, using influence, money, whatever. These things don't work when you're bringing in, when you're trying to be subversive. It, it's something that's small, under the current. And if you look at the history of Christianity, that's always how Christianity has grown. One of the worst things that has happened in America is that we have bought into thinking that if we have political power, we can advance the kingdom of God. Or if we have enough celebrities who say they're Christian, that that's how we advance the kingdom of God. That is not how Christianity has spread. If you look at the early church, the, the, the primary converts early on were women and children, the, the categories of people that were deemed the least significant. And yet it was through that, through their hospitality, through their loves, through their sacrifice, that people looked at them and said, there's something different about you. When cities would get infected with diseases and everyone else would flee in order to save their own skins, Christians would stay and they would serve the sick and they would care for them. And people looked at, you, you got to admit, those Christians, they love one another. There's something different about that. And so as we look at our situation, 
again, in the political arena or in the culture, the declining morals, whatever, this shouldn't, this shouldn't surprise us, for one. But two, it shouldn't discourage us because God was never working through the political machine anyway. God was never working through our money or through the celebrity statuses or, or using pop culture. That's not how God works. He works through one-on-one -on -one relationships. He works on people loving one another well, tangibly, and with just right there, life on life. And so as everything else is falling apart around us, we shouldn't be discouraged, just as David wasn't discouraged. Because he kept saying, I'm living like God's promises are true. I'm going to keep pursuing that vision. I'm going to keep being faithful to God because I know he's going to bring this to pass. People who are subversive are also following in the, the line of Jesus. You think of when Jesus came and he spoke primarily in parables, that was a very subversive tactic. It wasn't in your face necessarily all the time. It had to make people think. And in, in fact, in one instance, in Matthew 21, Jesus gives this parable about the wicked tenants, about these people who they were entrusted with building up this vineyard for, for this master, and the time came for them to, to give up what they had produced, and this master sends all these servants, and the, the, these tenants start killing the servants. And finally, the master says, well, I'm going to send my own son, because surely they'll respect him. And the tenants say, well, let's actually kill him. That way we can have this whole thing to ourselves. And Jesus was making the point that you've, as the people of God, you've been given a stewardship. You've been given a mission. And you're not supposed to use it for you. Israel was always blessed so that they could be a blessing. And Israel was losing sight of that. And what was hilarious about this is the Pharisees who are listening, all of a sudden it's like the light goes on. They realize, hey, wait a second, that guy's talking about us. And they get enraged. And they plan to kill him then after that. I mean, this, this was Jesus bringing about change. It was subversive, getting people thinking, getting people to engage with their circumstances, and really evaluating, are you pursuing what God wants or not? So we have to ask ourselves, are we being subversive in a good way? Or are we playing the same game that everyone else is? Are we using our money and our time the way the rest of the world would say, hey, that's at least that's a smart thing to do? Or are we living in a way that says the kingdom of God is real? God has made promises about what is to come, and I'm living like it's already real. And so if we are living that way, people will look at us and say, what you're doing doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I, obviously I'm on Facebook some, and I see so many people posting about the election, and that's at the forefront of everyone's mind. And some of it just seems so pragmatic, where it's like we're, we're clinging to control, we're clinging to power, we're clinging to comfort. And both sides do this. I mean, there are people who, are, who identify as Christian who are voting for Clinton because of immigration issues. There are people who are going to vote for Donald Trump because of what they think he can do with the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, like, a lot of that is out of our hands. And we're called to be faithful. We're called to pursue what God has put in front of us. We're supposed to take that next step of faith. We're not supposed to get bogged down and furious and ruin our credibility by making arguments about things that are outside our control anyway. Instead, we should be just doing that faithful work of doing what God has put in front of us and thinking in terms of big picture. Think of Saul. He was king for 30-plus years, and he wasn't a good king. He was disobedient to God, and yet everything didn't fall apart just because he was in control, because God was at work. God would raise up David and would bring things around. It would set up a good trajectory, at least for a little while. 
So things aren't always just lost just because we can't see a way forward. We're supposed to keep our eyes firmly fixed on what God has said and keep our focus on his promises. We see also an example of David in that he's patient. The subversive person is patient because they're like, they realize that they're not the ones who are supposed to accomplish everything. They recognize that they have a part to play, but in the end, God is the one who's going to be doing the heavy lifting. Uh, I like the movie U571, and uh, if you're not familiar with it, just real quick, it's the, the Americans capture a German submarine, and they're going to use it in World War II, and things go badly, just to keep it short, and the submarine is sinking. And there are all these things that have to be made right, and then along the way, a German boat shows up, and something has to be done about that German boat, and they, but they can't fire a missile because they're sinking and the water's screwing stuff up. So everyone on this team is doing these little pieces. And there's one guy at the end where he's down low and he's trying to get the pipes set up so there's enough pressure to launch this missile. But in the end, the, the, as the room is filling up with water, all these things fall down and collapse and pin him down. And in his dying, last dying act, he gets things in order so that they can fire this missile and the rest of the men on the ship are, are saved. Now, he had a vision of something bigger than himself. He wasn't just looking for what immediately helped him. He was looking at, okay, what's the big picture here? The mission going in was that they would take control of the sub and that they would use it against the Germans. And even though it cost him his life, he ends up taking that action at the end. He sacrifices himself because it advanced that greater goal. As Christians, we're supposed to have that mindset. Some of us, unfortunately, are going to be the guy who gets trapped underwater. Some of us would be like David, who get elevated into positions of influence and, and do significant things for God. But regardless, all of us are called to do the same thing. Be faithful. Wait on the Lord. Remember, that's not being passive and doing nothing. But waiting on the Lord means looking at what God has promised and saying, how does that fit into my life? What does that require of me? How do I be faithful in that? So just for some points of application, I want you to think about we need to obey God in regards to the step right in front of us. And that means we need to also use God's prescribed means of moving things forward. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, it says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The means in which we're going to see change in the world, the way that we're going to be effective witnesses is by giving ourselves to the word of God, listening to what God has to say, being people of prayer, fellowshipping with one another, loving one another well. That's how change is going to take place, and we need to give ourselves to that. We need to embrace God's promises for us and let them shape our expectations for life. We need to see the new world that is not yet visible. We need to pursue what God says is true, even though our physical eyes don't always see it. We need to love and forgive the way Christ says, because we know in the end he's going to sort everything out. We're free to forgive. We're free to love, because we know God will work it all out. We need to be people who are seeking the salvation offered to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, not some cheap substitute. We need to be people who are not satisfied with the status quo, not saying, well, this is the way everyone else has always done it. This is the same agenda everyone else has. We need to fit in. No, we need to be shaped differently by the word of God, and we need to pursue what he puts in front of us instead. So how do we do all these things? 
We need to recognize that God is always at work for the good of his people. And so as people of faith, we need to wait for God to bring his salvation in his way and his timing. Just like he did with David, just like he does with Israel, just as he's done with the church and with believers, we are called to be faithful to what God has put in front of us. That means letting his word shape us and being faithful to the step he's put in front. Because at the end of the day, we need to be people who wait on God, not people who are trying to produce salvation in our own strength. Because any salvation we can produce in our own strength is no salvation worth having. The only salvation that means anything is the one that is come, it was brought to us through Jesus Christ. And so keep that in the forefront of our thinking and just examine, where, where do we stand with the word of God? How much of an effect does it have on me? Am I living in a way that's wise in the rest of the world? Or am I living in a way that only makes sense if what God says is true. Let's pray.